forever. Dog. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah. Hi, all of you. Hi. This is how we have a podcast. <laughs> uh, I am thrilled to have with me today... Um, the candidates for WGA board. Uh, I'm going to have you introduce yourselves and tell us some places where we may have seen your name on screen. Uh, Liz, let's start with you. Sure. My name is Liz Alper. Uh, you may have seen my name on such shows like The Rookie on ABC, uh, Chicago Fire on NBC, and Hawaii Five O on CBS, and hopefully maybe. CW will make it like a quad, whatever that, whatever that achievement so unlock is. CW showrunners, Liz is available. Yes, please. We God. don't use this as a job board, but for future right. reference. This is exactly what this podcast today is going to be about, is yeah, just getting exactly. me on the CW. Uh, hey, I'm Zoe Marshall. You have only seen my name on one show, Charmed, seasons one yeah. and two. On the CW, so oh, <laughs> maybe my girl. I can get you in there. Yes. <laughs> so can I ask you, um, before we sort of uh, get around to everybody, where have you been until now? Were you uh, an assistant? Were you yes. working for yourself? What were you doing? I was an assistant for years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Every type of assistant job I have had. I worked for an agent at a very large agency. I was a showrunner's assistant several times. I was an assistant on a movie. I was an assistant on a couple of different pilots, writer's assistant, PA, script coordinator, like all of the jobs. (laughs) Great. Well, congratulations on the job. Thank you (laughs) so much. It's high time. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Dante. Oh, hey. Um, uh, I'm Dante Harper. I'm a screenwriter. Uh, I've been working in the industry now for 13 years, but before that I was an indie film, which is sort of like where you pay people to let you make movies, um, <laughs> for about 12 years before that. So it's kind of been my whole whole thing. And um, and uh, I mostly do like tentpole action-y kind of things. My most recent good thing I managed to somehow get a credit on was uh, was the, the uh, Alien Covenant. Mm-hmm. And... Um, uh, but uh, yeah, I'm. Um, I'm. I, I guess I'm. I'm. I'm running for board right now, because uh, I. You know, I, I'm one of these people with a real fixation with the end product. Like I, I really love movies. I love going to theaters and seeing a good movie in a theater. And over the last 13 years, I think it's gotten just a lot harder to make good movies in that system, in the feature development space. And it's gotten harder for a lot of different reasons, but I think that some of the things that the agency campaign is trying to address are, are, are the exact issues that I think are gonna improve the development process mm-hmm. um, and make it a little easier to make the kind of movies that I love to go see. Rob, please introduce yourself. And then I do wanna circle back around and talk about some of these specifics, uh, specific reasons you're all running. I'm Rob Chavis. Uh, you have seen me most recently on Blackish. Before that, I was on Superior Donuts on CBS. Before that, I was on two NBC shows, Truth Be Told and Bad Judge. All right. Yeah. Have you? What, what, what's your comedy background? Um, I because <laughs> you these are some like big comedy yeah, shows, absolutely. network comedy shows. Absolutely, it's just kind of how my voice developed when I decided I wanted to be a writer. When I decided I wanted to get into television, and I started thinking about writing specs and writing. Um, and for a couple of reasons, my voice had just developed into a comedic voice. I love 
genre stuff. I love to read Stephen King novels. I, I, those are the things that I read and I watch. Um, but the voice that comes out of my head is comedic. And so <laughs> when I was thinking about the things that I love to watch and I loved and I wanted to mimic um, with those first couple of specs, those were comedies. Hmm. Um, and sure. so that, that was sense. the easiest place to start. Yeah. And, and I love it. Great. Um, I want to, uh, Dante, come back to you and talk about some of these specific uh, uh positions that you've taken and some of the ideas that you have as far as how how development and feature films can be made better through the WGA and what in your experience has led to some of these ideas well you know I think that there's like a very natural process where it's very hard to get movies made you know all the way up to the studio level and everyone's under a lot of pressure and the studios, when I began, a very typical contract for a screenwriter was a three-step contract. It was you, you you did a rough like first draft and then producers gave you notes and it was a whole it was a whole process. And then uh, I, I think I got three or four of those before <laughs> those all went away and we all went to one-step contracts, which I think happened for a couple different reasons. Um, uh, I think the studios thought it would, you know, it would enable them to sort of get through the process faster. But I think that's also encouraged films to have like this revolving door of writers on projects. And unlike TV, which I think is vastly awesome because everyone is in a room together in the screenwriting uh, space, um, uh, everyone is sort of consecutive. And actually, yeah. we're all in competition for credit. So there's mm -hmm. actually a real incentive for for making massive changes to whatever happened before. And yeah. so I've been on a lot of bigger movies where sometimes there are 17 different drafts done by different writers and it starts to, you know, it's got this sort of Chinese whispers kind of, you know, game quality where it's like, how did we end up here? Hmm. And looking back at what the agency campaign is doing, um, uh, on the screenwriter side, we're trying to deal with uh, with one-step contracts. And in the action that we're going through right now, uh, there's a thing called contracts and invoices, which mm -hmm. is transparency on the side of the studio. I mean, on the agencies that when they start you on a job, they'll be transparent and send the contracts to the guild. This is a very normal and natural thing mm -hmm. in almost every other industry that even slightly resembles <laughs> this one. Um, and that's the kind of thing that starts allowing the WGA to sort of track when writers are getting abused into free work, because that's what I wanted to get to on the whole front of yes. what what happens in, in, in one step deals is that that one step always becomes actually more steps and usually way more than three steps, because what happens is you've got a draft coming in, but then your producer says, you know, we only get one chance to get this right. So if you can give me this draft first, and I'll give you some notes, you know, and how are you going to say no to that? Exactly. And it, yeah, let's yeah. sort of take a step back because this happens in TV development as well. Um, and talk about sort of the the mental picture for a writer being asked to do that stuff um, and why it's hard to say no. <laughs> well, you know, um, my advice to people is you've got to say no really early and often. Like when they say, hey, we can do a one-step rewrite contract for you, 
you say, okay, well, you're going to get a draft. Everyone will get the draft at the same time, and that's how this is going to be. And I want to be really clear on that before we're at the tail end of this. Right. Um, because once you've not said that and you are on the tail end, I mean, everyone really is trying. Producers are really trying. They're not the bad guys. And then the executive who's got to take it to his boss or her boss, they also are totally afraid. They want to get it perfect. And... You know, I've done, you know, I've, I've, I've turned in 13 versions of a movie before because it was going to get greenlit or not, right. you know, and it was going to get greenlit or not if we got the movie fixed. Are you going to say, I'm sorry, I'm just going to not do this, this, right. you, you, you really, you're in a real predicament. Yeah. And the only way that we can solve these things is to sort of address some of these systemic ways mm-hmm. that, that the industry has made it, I think, a little harder. I mean, well, actually a lot harder for screenwriters to make good movies, you know, I mean, and... Uh, and to get and properly that, paid for their work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we talked to Michelle Mulroney earlier this week about this precisely, so I, I would encourage people to go and listen to that podcast yeah. as well. No, and the last thing I, I would like to say about it is that on the on the one-step contract deal, it's one of these things where I don't think it was any particular intention of the agencies, but when you are able to put your writers on one-step deals that move like a, a lot quicker, they can start to treat a big studio project kind of like they're putting their hand in the tiller, like we can just run a couple clients through this job, yeah, and it happens really, really regularly, and so it's very monetarily beneficial for them, you know, and... Uh, I had so, not heard that argument. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I, think, I think that that's, I, I, you know, and again, whether that's intentional or not, that becomes the state of play, you mm-hmm. know, because it is their job to make money. It is their job to put their clients on jobs, you mm-hmm. know, and but I see that WGA's job as to balance the industry. Absolutely. We're in this industry together, and we occasionally have to just say, hey, guys, um, this is becoming toxic and untenable, you know. And again, what I come back to is never mind getting us a few benefits, you know, which we absolutely do need. But it's like I started an indie film. I love movies. I want to make good ones. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm really fighting for here is that we've got to have a better way so that we are making movies that audiences actually want to see in theaters, which is getting harder and harder. Uh, Liz, let's jump back over to you and talk about your experience. You've been in network TV for a few years now. Yeah. Uh, Worked on a handful of shows. Um, What's been your experience on those shows? What's been your interaction with the Guild over those years that sort of made you want to get more involved? Honestly, I wanted to get involved with the Guild even before it was staffed as a writer. So for uh, three years, I was David Shore's assistant. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know, David Shore is a member of NEGCOM. Uh, He was also a board member, and he's really involved with the Guild at the time that I was on his desk. He would uh, help present at the new members' orientations. And so he was one of the first faces that new members would see. And he's incredibly passionate about giving back to the Guild. So just by being on his desk, I had a lot of interaction with people who were working at the Guild, different programs that were reaching out, asking David for his advice or to come and speak. And so that was my first exposure to, you know, the different sorts of things that the Guild was there for. And to be honest, when I was an assistant uh, long ago, like on Top Chef, I always knew about the WGA. I knew I wanted to be in the WGA. 
I always thought it was the place that got you your health care and (laughs) like a fancy card that was like, I'm better than you because I'm a writer now. And then discovering that the WGA is responsible for promoting diversity in rooms and making sure that our members are protected and constantly on the move to improve this industry and make it so that writers like me, like Rob, like Zoe, like Dante, that we actually have an industry that we can work in um, in the future. Because if you remember, or if you've ever heard about the old days of Hollywood, where writers, as Alfred Hitchcock would put it, were just monkeys with typewriters, um, that you barely got paid and you were always working for that next script. You know, you didn't have the protections that we have today. It was a factory job. It really, yes, yes, exactly. So... I started getting involved in the guild as an assistant Mm -hmm. um, when I wasn't, you know, when I was behind the scenes. And then once I became a member, um, I've gone to committee meetings. I've also been on shows that are a little demanding, so I was never able to make uh, meetings a regular Mm -hmm. thing. Um, But... Behind the scenes, I've been reaching out to different members that I've met at new member orientation, at Asian American committee meetings, um, women writers, everyone that I can possibly meet I've been talking to. So it's a lot of support that I've been doing in an unofficial capacity. And this past uh, this past staffing season, when I got involved with some of the grassroots movements, I started moving that support into more of an official capacity. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I did was create the WGA uh, Solidarity Grid to help out some of the different hashtags that were going on on Twitter that were specifically created to help boost lower level diverse members, um, anyone who is from an underrepresented group. And basically, as Zoe likes to tell me, I kept the receipts to show (laughs) that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I did. You know, I just I made sure we keep hearing over and over and over again that. I couldn't find any black writers. I couldn't find any Asian American writers. And now we have a list of well over, you know, 500 unique names. And the majority of those writers are from underrepresented groups. So there's no longer an excuse to say we couldn't find a writer of this background um, or from this group. And I'll say, I I think I said this before on the podcast, but I'll repeat it here um, as someone who's read a lot of those scripts. Yeah. The bar is really high. Yeah. Those scripts are really good. Like, in general, these rookie writers are writing really good material. Yeah. So the fact that you've now helped showrunners find a way to find these writers is enormous. Well, and that's, I think one thing is that we have to keep in mind is as underrepresented writers, we have to be better than expected. Mm. Because when we are in the room... There is, and it's it's not intentional in most parts, but there is a stigma where you look around the room and you see a diverse face and you go, they must have been really good <laughs> to get into this room. And that's not something that you necessarily think of when you see yeah. a cis white male in the writer's room. Yeah. And so that's oh, something no, I that... I phoned it in my yeah. whole <laughs> Did you notice I'm making, like, direct eye contact with you? It was Ben. It was too like, comfortable. Exactly. Like, I'm just, I'm just moving over, like, oh, really? Please, tell me. Tell but, me all me, about... Actually, yeah. that, that's an interesting point, and it's come up a few times in the podcast. And, and I would ask this of any of you who were an uh, underrepresented writer in TV. Did you feel that pressure 
to sort of prove yourself? Did you feel like your stuff had to be gold out of the gate? Oh my God, yes. (laughs) Oh my God, it's, I mean, just generally in life, the old adage, work twice as hard to get half as much. That is very, very real. Even when you just look at the opportunities that, you know, underrepresented creators get to create their work on a commercial scale, you're not allowed to make a mediocre movie. Yeah. It has to break records for you to still get a budget that's below like <laughs> movies of similar ilk. It's yeah. but when you're in the room, especially when you're the only one, there's a lot of pressure of like this obligation to people like you who may be watching it. But at the same time, you cannot represent an entire race of people. Exactly. But you also don't want to be that writer that's always like, oh guys, we can't do that because black people, you right. know? Yeah. Like you don't want to be pigeonholed as like oh, God, they're just that soggy blanket right. all the time. You don't like, want to be the scold every time. Yeah, yeah. but you you have this responsibility where it's like you have to say something, but you also want to prove, like, but I can do other things, too. And you just try to write your way through the problem. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think for me on the shows that I've been on, um, it is that balance of if there's something happening or something happening to a black character or a certain storyline and it goes bad, people are going to look back and be like, who are the black people on this? Were there black writers? <laughs> were there black yes. writers? Oh, oh, Rob Chavis, what's that? Interesting. Okay. You no. see like, the Pepsi commercial and you're like, who was in that boardroom? Like, yeah, totally. You like, exactly. don't want to be totally. that, that black ad exec for Pepsi. <laughs> right. Except, but you also know that those ad execs were probably like, well, our black intern was there when we were pitching this idea and <laughs> we didn't say people. anything. So. so, I mean, I, I've been on a show as executive story editor where something was coming up. We started to have a really deep discussion about you know the progress since the civil rights movement and redlining in Chicago and all of this stuff and someone started talking about these things and I had a couple other black writers in the room with me at that time which was nice but like no one was going to say anything and I literally looked around the room I was like I guess this is me and I just I went to the wall for it and the showrunner had an opinion and I was like that's not how this happens that's not true Mm -hmm. and there was a calculation in my head of this could be risky yeah but I was like I'm not gonna have this conversation without saying something and there are people in that room that came up to me afterwards and said you know what that's why you're here Mm -hmm. thank you for being brave enough to say that I'm not the person that throws a flag and doesn't have a solution. Mm-hmm. And so when you know you have support, and that was a great room. Um, oh, I almost said names. Um, <laughs> that was a great room to be in. And, but I knew I had the support of great writers and great people who appreciated my voice. And so even in stepping out in that way, they said, that's why you're here. Thanks for stepping up. Thanks for saying that. Um, and I was able to, to move the needle into a different direction. It shouldn't fall on you no, every time, is, every I think time. is the point. And, and Liz, I mean, this is yeah. all sort of a sidebar, um, but I think it's it's an interesting conversation. It's but you, you posted about this on Twitter recently. I post about this a lot on Twitter. <laughs> but specifically the question of like, how do I or who can speak up Yes. Um, in, in this sort of... Ser- situation yeah and and why does it have to be me every time yeah exactly i think that's that's the big thing is whenever you are the diverse writer 
in the room, you are the de facto protector of every single underrepresented group. Like that responsibility falls to you. So what kind Um, of responses did you get to that question? I got I I got some excellent ones. There were some really amazing passive aggressive uh, responses. I think I won't say names, but someone suggested, you know, if if someone pitches something that's stereotypical or kind of offensive, it's just, you know, that sounds really familiar. Yes. Where I, I feel like I've seen that a lot before. Um, I said that. Yeah. <laughs> I said I'm not saying names, Ben. Um, but I think that's fair. It's and very that's fair. also from a good writing standpoint. Yeah. Don't pitch the thing we've seen a million yeah. times. I think the the response that I appreciated the most, and I believe this was from uh, Robert Hewitt Wolf, mm-hmm. was him saying, This is not a you problem. This is an us problem. And we need to do better about this. I can give you advice for how to navigate this in the room, but the fact of the matter is until we actually change like our perspectives of stories and people and characters and break away from the stereotypical stories that have been told for years and decades it's it's not going to change absolutely so i i think that's the bigger answer is like how do we change attitudes in the room it's not going to be easy so and and it's also really difficult when you're in a position in the room where you want to point out like uh, it doesn't really go like that or it you don't you don't want to like call people racist like that's not what you're saying it's just like hey here are some nuances of race to be aware of but i think sometimes it is easier to be upset that someone is calling you something that you're right. not as opposed to like quietly sitting back and listening and being like oh this is a blind spot that I have which is fine because it's like we all only have our own experience but that's the difficulty of like when you do try to offer a different perspective to people you hope that they will be receptive in a way where they're not feeling attacked but actually it's an even dialogue on both sides and I think when we can approach these conversations uh, and not immediately get defensive but come you know, come into these conversations with an open mind and an interest in bettering ourselves. That's how we change our industry. Let me ask all of you, because I think having just followed you all on Twitter and sort of knowing you socially, it seems like getting, you know, changing the industry for underrepresented writers and for rookie writers of all kinds is an important topic for all of you. So when you are elected to the board, um, what do you do? Like, you know, how do you mobilize committees? How do you start to make those changes? What would you like to see happen? I just want to speak really quickly on that, because I think the four of us have gravitated towards each other throughout this election because we all happen to be from underrepresented groups. Um, And that was one thing that we could all come together and talk about and say, like, our voices are not present on the board. Um, We are we are not big names. We do not have blue check marks next to our (laughs) Twitter handles. And we are facing problems right now that didn't exist five years ago, 10 years ago. Uh, And no one really knows how to tackle them. But what's important is that those problems are being heard and the voices of the people experiencing them are amplified. And that's what we all intended to do. Um, I know we've all had different, you know, opinions of what we can do to promote diversity and to, you know, make sure that. Uh, I hate saying the word vulnerable writers. That's not. I meant underrepresented writers are not left behind. Um, Rob, I know you've you and I have talked at length yeah. about some of the things you want to do. Absolutely. I mean, I think for me, I 
when I first got here, I got into the NBC Writers on the Verge program. And, you know, not having been in this town for a very long time, I thought I was pretty much done. Um, I was like, great, I'm going to be on Parks and Rec next season. And off we go. Um, And that is absolutely not what happened. Um, You know, I came out of that program and got all that great support and met a bunch of great people over at NBC. Um, But I didn't get staffed that first season. It's not automatic. I was free. Uh, I think I was good. Uh, You know, all of those things. But I didn't get staffed. And everybody had uh, an assistant or someone they already knew who's going to get that opportunity. And, you know, so so for me, I doubled down and built my network Mm -hmm. and learned a lot from that. And then when I got onto shows and they were NBC shows, the program did help get me some of those um, opportunities. And I did get paid for at the beginning. Uh, But I was staff writer twice in a row. Um, And then I didn't work for a year after that, like a full calendar year. And the job I got at Superior Donuts on CBS, I had to scrap for. Mm -hmm. I put on a suit. I went to a woman who was in business affairs willing to be a lawyer again if it got me on a studio lot. And halfway through that conversation, she was like, but you want to be a writer, right? I was like, yeah, I absolutely want to be a writer. (laughs) She's like, well, let's work on that. And she was able to put me in David Staff's office a couple of days later. I had a great conversation with him. And it was right when Superior Donuts got picked up. And because I was willing to pull every string I've got for every connection I had, I put myself in that room. And I had that job a week later. Mm -hmm. And that's what it takes. But I was a staff writer again. And... You know, doing 36 episodes at Staff Writer and and having to negotiate a double bump if we got picked up again, that's what put me where I am now. And, you know, I had a full career before I got here and I was contributing and I knew how to talk in a room and all of those things, but they were taking advantage of me because they could. Sure. And, and this is not unusual for a rookie writer, for, right. you know, a first year writer and sp- specifically for an under- underrepresented. Yeah. And and so to me, there's lots of things that we can do to negotiate with the studios and to help build programs and all of that. But I say all the time, part of it is looking at our membership. Showrunners mm-hmm. are members of the guild. Mm-hmm. And Yes, if you don't think about women or diversity until the last two slots you have, it's going to be highly competitive and be a problem. I tell people all the time, if you are up against me for a job and I've got 36 episodes under my belt as staff writer, you're probably not going to beat me because I've been in the room a lot. And if you're a first time person coming up against me, like I've got real moves. Same low level position. position. So. People need to be responsible enough to move people yeah. up the chain, think about diversity in women earlier in the process. And to me, part of it is shining that lens back on our membership mm-hmm. to say, what can we do to help each other? Who can we put into these positions who are going to make those better decisions at the top of the lineup so that everybody's not making these decisions at the bottom of the lineup? Yeah. That's one of the things I definitely want to concentrate on. Yeah, um, I think it makes a lot of sense. I just want to piggyback off of something that you said. So when I first staffed, I didn't have any credits like I when you're a first time staff writer and you know you didn't get promoted by your boss or you didn't get a freelance script it is incredibly hard to beat out other staff writers who have maybe been a staff writer before or they have gotten a couple of credits or even an outline and all that goes to say our members who are showrunners even your support staff if your writer's assistant 
is, you know, of an underrepresented group, that's a big deal. Because that role can be the difference between maybe getting, if the show gets canceled, like, if they got a freelance when they were a writer's assistant, next staffing season, that can be a huge difference between them getting staffed and, like, maybe three more years of putting in work as support staff, you know, before they get their shot. And so that's really something very important to think about when you're pre-WGA, those types of choices that showrunners are making in terms of the people supporting them, it just it makes a very big difference if the person, you know, who's picking up the person who's picking up lunches and the person who's in the room hearing how story is broken and how the sausage yeah. gets made and gets to develop these personal relationship with these writers who will help them get their first writing job. I think it really starts there too in terms of how are we consciously thinking about ways to integrate different voices into the room and we also need to be thinking about support staff. Yeah, that's that's a great point. Um you know, we haven't touched on the agency campaign, and we will, but um, it was, it's was it been brought up quite a bit, and I think it's worth saying that this is not a one-issue uh, election. Uh, there's a lot of stuff to cover, and we've, we've talked about a lot of it already, but I'm curious to hear from all of you about what are some of the other issues that you think are important that maybe the Guild is not talking about, especially during this election. Uh, what are some things that we need to shine some light on? Uh, Dante, let's come back to you. Sure. Um, one of the things that, that you know, that I, I've not devoted much of this campaign to talking about um, and I'm basically backburnering, uh, should I be elected for, for probably the first year? Because we're going to have a really, really busy year. <laughs> but um, uh, it, I, I do think that when I talk about the systemic ways that, that we've made it really or we've allowed it to become very difficult to get a good movie made, I think the way that the WGA handles credits and arbitration could use a lot of improvement. I know a lot of writers that, you know, it's, we, we we have a very different approach to getting credits in the feature space. <laughs> and and a lot of people work their lives and don't really see many credits. Um, and uh, and so that is, that's probably the biggest issue for me that I'm not really talking about right now because I'm really focused on some of these other things because I feel like, you know, our, 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 our guild is at a very key moment right now, you know, where we need to kind of circle the wagons and, and pull it together, you know, and, and my focus right now is really thinking about these bread and butter issues that affect all screenwriters very, very specifically, because it's, it's not just one step contracts. It's that you're expected to do free work before you even get a job. Now yeah. you're, you know, I mean, I've, <laughs> I remember on my second job, um, uh, I, I waited eight months to get paid for a feature that I wrote. And at that time, I had to fight eviction notices. My mm-hmm. boyfriend and I were like, almost got kicked out of our house, which when I was an indie filmmaker making no money at <laughs> all, like I managed to, you know, to get through that. But in that situation, when you've got a studio saying, I think it'll be two weeks. It's like, hey, you know what? Um, uh, just say eight months and, and we can maybe deal with that. But that is a very typical thing. You know, I've, I, I've actually finished a screenplay before I've been paid a commencement before. You know, this oh, yeah. is very, very typical. And so some of the things that are in the agency campaign, like the contracts and invoices, I think are going to help the guild say, hey, guys, and they can stand up for us on our behalf, which yeah. for screenwriters, you know, we're such loners. We see ourselves as these weird little kind of independent entities, and we're, we're 
we're extremely poorly connected. I'm, I'm always just overwhelmed with jealousy when I'm in a room with TV <laughs> writers. You know, because I remember Should back we break when, a <laughs> pilot right now? No, seriously, seriously. I'm like, I just want you guys to come over and help me finish this screenplay. Um, and uh, no, because I, I mean, I. I, I, I'd been in the WGA for all of, I think, eight months before we went on strike in 2007. Ah, sure. And I remember learning that I could look down the strike line and there'd be clusters of these writers talking to each other. <laughs> and then there'd be these like weird, withdrawn, <laughs> pale, <laughs> nervous characters. And it was like screenwriter, TV writers, yeah. screenwriter, screenwriter, TV writers, TV yeah. writers. Um, but, it's uh, funny, Michelle talked about that too, and the way that that sort of the feature writer persona is changing. Changing, yeah. and the way it has to change to be not just more collaborative, but more of a community. Yeah, uh, and I think that's an important point too. And again, I, I would ask people to go listen to that. But. Yeah, and you know, I think that we're in this big transition point where the line between features mm -hmm. and TV is disappearing Absolutely. very, very quickly. You know, and and I'm very vigorously fighting to just keep theatrical going for a few more <laughs> years. I think we could still make some good movies, guys. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I think that that screenwriters have to kind of get out of our our our, our uh, you know out out of our lonely cabins mm -hmm. and our you know our little Quonset huts in the mountains and whatever and 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 get much more involved in our union, which is a complex issue in and of itself. I mean, it's one of the things that's in my campaign platform is I feel like the WGA has to do much better outreach mm -hmm. to its screenwriters because a lot of screenwriters they interface with the WGA when the WGA does something that they don't like, yeah. and that's when they read the emails. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great uh, point, um, Rob. What else? What is the stuff that is? What is more of the stuff that's in important to you that you want to sort of uh, shed light on? I think for me, um, before I was a writer, I worked, I was a lawyer, I worked in business for a long time. I've interacted with these gigantic corporations for a long time and kind of understand their motivations. I understand the way they look at the future. We worked with big wireless clients and I, I see the things that they test and they think about looking forward. And so for me, looking at the way every platform is creating an arms race for their own streaming and people keep saying the back end is going away it's gone it's, it's evaporating we're never going to get it again and then you see an article that big bang theory and two and a half men might sell for 1.5 billion dollars that doesn't look like something that's going away to me and it will only go away until they negotiate all of our contracts so that they don't have to pay us to reuse it over and over again mm -hmm. the second they do they're going to throw it back on the front the front lines of their offerings and say, hey, here's this great thing that got made. Here's Glow that got made and it has 15 people in it. And now this person is a star. Why don't you go back and watch it again? Mm -hmm. That's going to get shoved to the front page and say, hey, if you love Alison Brie, come watch this thing. Yeah. And people are going to do it. My daughter started Friends today. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. You know? And she's going to churn through yeah. it. Um, and that's going to continue to happen. So the little things that we're making, we don't know what's going to pop. We don't know what's going to be there in the future. And if writers are the people who come up with these things and are in those trenches on a day-to-day -day basis making and telling these stories – for in the future, when people are watching them and experiencing them and connecting with them, we need to be compensated for mm -hmm. it. Um, I noticed a couple of weeks ago that when uh, CBS and DirecTV had a battle over carriage or whatever, 
it took three full weeks for that battle to to, to go away, and yeah. the CEOs of CBS were kind of like, oh, we've kind of seen an uptick in CBS All Access. And that just shows you that they know their audiences can find them. Yeah. And it's a little, it's not concerning. I love that there's lots of ways to find the content that we're making, but we need to make sure we're part of that discussion, that we are fairly compensated when they do that. Um, and, and I think talking about not only those views and when they use it and when it appears, because um, I'll, I'll pay money for Netflix whether I watch it or not. You know, and it's attractive yeah. because of the library. So your show sitting there, whether somebody watches it or not, is part of the sale of that. And so getting deep into issues like that. Yeah. Um, and I think for me, having that business background, coming to this town and almost immediately looking at the way things work and saying this is not the way things work anywhere else. Yeah. Um, that's part of the reason I'm running for the board, because I have that background. When I have these conversations with people, when I have these conversations with board members, they say, oh, you get this. Yeah. You understand where the holes are. You understand where the problems are. And for me, looking at all of that, if, you know, as we're going to this next negotiation, um, the next NBA negotiation, mm -hmm. I'd rather be in that room fighting yeah. than on the outside wondering what's happened. I want to help. Yeah. I mean, look, just hearing you talk about it <laughs> makes me want to have you in that room yeah. No, uh, I, I, because I, it is so complicated, right? Yeah. I mean, just to follow up on uh, on 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 Rob's excellent series of points there, <laughs> you know, it, it's I think it, it's clear to anyone if they stand back that, that this whole industry is going through a major, major yeah. sea change right now. And it is not not the job of these companies to look after writers it's the job of the union and the union is us it's mm -hmm. our job to look after writers not just our you know and not just the writers working right now but yeah. the writers that'll be working tomorrow that's a great point mm -hmm. you know yeah. and and this is the moment and this the the industry has exploded because of streaming and streaming has exploded because of the great content mm -hmm. and the content is generated by the writers yeah. Yeah. You know, this is the time when we need to stand up and say, hey, we need to be part of this because the new business models, they're going to be business models. They're profit driven. And we can't just like hope that they're going to be nice to us and give us little <laughs> back end deals. And yeah. you know, that, that's not going to happen. That's not how it happens. And yeah. so that's why I think that we're in a moment when we, we really need the union. We need to be very involved in our union. Yeah, I, I think that's very, very <laughs> smart, very well. But uh, Zoe, what else? Um. You know, I'm very aware of the Guild's resources to help writers, particularly because for years before I was actually in the WGA, I basically stocked the Guild Foundation Library, which I feel like everyone walks past when they're going somewhere else in the Guild, but they never actually go inside. But, like, the Guild Library is just incredible. They've got over 40,000 yeah. titles and then some, and it grows based on, you know, generosity from members, like donating their material. It's really cool. And the foundation also puts on a ton of guild events that mm -hmm. non-members can go to. I got so much out of this union before I even paid to be in this union. <laughs> it's really important to me. I want everyone to understand, you know, um, Dante and Rob talked on this. The union exists for the sole purpose of nurturing our careers protecting us and, you know, giving us the most tools possible to further our craft and make sure we are properly compensated for our craft. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, during the ATA campaign, before we took our collective action to fire our agents, um, a friend was like, hey, I do these 
mixers every year just for people to get to know each other. And we linked up together and ultimately did five different staffing mixers where writers could meet other showrunners. We did one where a bunch of some executives had heard about our mixers and are like, we are so thirsty to meet some new writers. Can we please come? (laughs) That's great. Um, And then executives got involved and producers came and it just became this incredible experience. And we also called the guild and we're like, can we get some money for this? They're like, yeah, here's a check. And like, so it's just like, but the guild, they just have all these resources that they are just waiting for us to use. It's for us. And so that's a really huge focus for me having met literally hundreds of lower and mid-level writers through those mixers and just being super involved in the guild for the last year. And they've told me they almost feel like there's this glass wall between them and the guild. Like you have to pass a certain threshold to Mm -hmm. really be like in the guild to be able to go to the fourth floor. And it's like, (laughs) okay, y'all, like committee meetings are on the fourth floor. Like we can all go. Um, But it's just, but that's a problem. Yeah. Like we have ton of tons of resources that are underused and it's like this is our union if you want to learn how to read your deal like we have an entire department that can show you how to read your deal points and like if you're being paid late like late pay is not just like a dummy button on the website like it actually you can actually (laughs) contact the legal department and they will chase your late pay which they did for me last season yeah i reached out to the guild Mm -hmm. on friday and they called me back in like 12 minutes yes yes amazing i had the same experience last week yeah it's just every time i have called on the guild they have answered yeah um and i just i want every single member of this union regardless of like if you're associate current Mm -hmm. post current i really want you to understand like this is your union and it is what you make it and there are people who pour so much time and effort into making it a helpful resource and also if you're not getting what you need invest in your guild and be like i'm not getting what i need so that the people who are like we want this to be a union that works for everyone to give you what you need because it's there and so i just i've personally dedicated literally hundreds (laughs) of hours to try and be like an agent for other writers or to link up people together or to invest in my union and I want a chance to do that in an official capacity. I mean, I'm going to do it regardless, but it would be great <laughs> in an official capacity. I just, I, I don't like that it feels like there's a hierarchy of guild members. Like our votes all count the same. We all yeah. pay 1.5%. We all follow the same bylaws. Like it's if you can write and you ma- you, you know, can get over that initial threshold mm-hmm. of like qualifying for membership. That's it. Yeah. That's it. And then it's about like how can you shepherd your career in a way that works for you in a way that you want and use kind of wrap yourself up in this great union and like Well, I think I, it's interesting. Um I mean there's been a real sense of community uh in these past 6 months or so. Yeah. Uh during the agency campaign. And it sounds like the stuff you're talking about is Keeping that going even once we're on the other side of all that. And I think that's really important. Thank you. Especially to new members. And I think, like, unfortunately, um, so in the in the first ATA campaign meeting that I went to, I remember um, David Goodman was talking about how we kind of need to right the ship in terms of our relationships with um, our agents and with the people who represent us. And it just, it got me thinking about how I feel like this industry has found a very effective way to monetize insecurity. (laughs) Um, Truly. It's why we're, I think we can be afraid to say no sometimes. It's why you have assistants working a certain job for too long. Like every single step 
of this industry. Someone has found a way to monetize and perpetuate our insecurities. And this entire conflict, I think, is about taking our power and being like, mm, no, that's not how that relationship should be. Yeah. And I truly hope that beyond the community, sense of community that people feel, I hope that continues. But I hope that we will kind of like shake off the <clears throat> sleep of, I think, the way that we've been brainwashed feels like a <laughs> Well, the, oh, way we, the way we think of ourselves. Yes, yes. absolutely. And it's, have been made to think of ourselves. And so I think if we just remember, like, I think the power of our no, the power of communication, one of my closest friends likes to say, um, gossip is a word invented by men to keep women from sharing information. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that just applies to everyone in general. We have to share information. Yes. Yeah. Like, the, yeah. you know, agents have entire grids of what all of their clients are making at various levels. Like if you got an overall deal with this place, like they know exactly how much everybody is making and we need to be communicating in a way so that we have a network where it's like, Oh, so I know what I should be asking for. Like information right. is everything. I think we, the, the most effective way to disenfranchise a group of people is to keep them uninformed. And like, you know, this whole disruption has just broken the seal on everything. <laughs> yeah. And I think we just need to be as an, as informed as we possibly can. Yeah, I think that's that's really smart. Um, Liz, before we move on, anything else you wanted to talk about? Yeah, I guess um, specifically I've been really concerned about writer safety, mm -hmm. especially for TV writers in the writer's room. The hashtag MeToo movement took place about a year ago, I would say. Um, and even though we've made huge strides, I know uh, Guild Leadership has put together different committees to you know, provide resources for anyone going through a situation in the room to reach out to. We still need to do better. You know, abuse is still rampant in our rooms. And it goes all the way from microaggressions from people who don't understand that they're putting the onus of explaining every little thing to them on underrepresented writers who are most affected by, you know, their unintentionally thoughtless words um, to showrunners who know how to beat and break a writer down unnecessarily so that there are writers who are looking to leave the industry rather than work with assholes like that. Um, and so I want to make sure that we are not just educating the membership, we are educating showrunners, that part of the showrunner program that uh, people go through includes number twos who could potentially move into a showrunner position. I think we need to make everyone aware, you know, in, in a not so cheesy HR way, that... The, the world we live in right now needs to be safe for everybody. You know, our government is not going to keep us safe with Orange Cheeto in the White House. And the most we can do for each other is look out for one another. And so my concern, especially is for women and minorities and other writers from underrepresented groups who are in a room and who are worried about saying anything because it's say something and potentially lose your job and be unemployed and maybe never work again or suck it up and deal. And that is, that's not an acceptable choice to be facing. And I think there are a lot of predators out there in our own guild um, who have gotten off scot-free. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's fair that people who have 
bullied and abused and sexually harassed other writers are allowed to attend guild events, are allowed to make other writers feel unsafe in public spaces reserved solely for WGA members. And I think we need to actually start looking at our membership and saying, we're going to take a stand. It doesn't matter how powerful you are. If you are treating people like shit and you are the reason that someone is terrified to walk into a guild event, you should be facing consequences. And so that's something that I feel very passionately about. And that's something that hasn't gotten a lot of airplay during this election because the ATA has been such a, you know, a huge issue. Well, I think and, and, you know, this is part of why I wanted you four here specifically and why, you know, you all have my vote and the vote of everyone listening to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Both of them. <laughs> But it does feel like there is a new kind of writer coming into uh, the guild. And I think you all represent that kind of writer, even if you've, you've been part of it for a decade. Um, you know, it, found, it feels like a new kind of voice is being heard. And it's not, you know, to what Zoe was talking about, the sort of... Uh, um, self-effacing or self-defeating kind of writer it's a writer who loves doing this and is proud of doing this and wants to help other writers instead of the sort of institutional <laughs> behavior that we had for years and years of keeping other writers down yeah you know i am um, uh when i was uh <laughs> when i was hearing some of the talk about about things that we're doing right now to uh, increase diversity in the workplace and and educate and make people more sensitive. You know, in the screenwriting community, it's so it's so very different because we're all mm -hmm. sort of these lone wolves. But interestingly, you know, I mean, I'm a gay man working in the action movie space, which is about as white and heterosexual as it as it can be. <laughs> you know, and uh, and and male. You know, I mean, deeply deeply male. I think that you know one of the things that really changes things is. To go out and get that job, which is, of course, problematic to start with, but we're seeing more of it now, you know, and I think that one of the things I hope to be able to do when I'm in the board is really make people feel like, no, you can actually write whatever the fuck you want to and you can get out there and, and like do this. It's, it's there in our work. You know, I mean, I, I've I've been thrilled to see the changes in big movies in just the last ten mm -hmm. years. I mean, th there's there's representation like like mm -hmm. was somehow impossible fifteen years ago, <laughs> but people are like, oh wait, you mean people will see these movies that you know like whatever. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, at the same time, like especially in the action space, there's a lot of misogyny. There's a ton of it. You know, I've been in the fights with the director who's like, it'd be so great if he calls her a bitch in this scene. Just, yeah, he's just, I'm just like, yeah, I'm not, that's not going in my screenplay right there because that's actually just straight up, you know, and it's, there's, there's also a, a, a lot of implicit homophobia, you know, and, and fighting that stuff on the ground at the level of eye to eye with the executives, you know, and also eye to eye with the executives just being present. Like, I'm gay. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm, you know that like that it it changes things you yeah, know yeah. and uh, you know it's 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 <laughs> one of my greatest inspirations is Alana Wachowski right you know he, here is this director like what are are you know what has her work added to the feature space like it's hmm. not just you know i mean i have this whole theory about the way economics work in this industry and and that's that when someone sees the matrix they'll see a hundred more movies in the theater hoping to see another matrix <laughs> yeah. so never that's mind the billions and billions of dollars that 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 that, that, that franchise alone is worth but there's actually 
there's worth far beyond that for everybody, you mm-hmm. know. And and uh, so I'm I'm thrilled at the incredible like presence that she has made of herself. Um, and these these things change, yeah. you know. Th- these things make a huge huge difference Absolutely. in everyone's it, life. It, it creates change. Yeah. yeah, I think that's important. And if I could just piggyback on what Dante just said, just to speak to it, we've been. You said Ben, new voices are being heard. And it's true, we've also been screaming for decades. (laughs) We have been screaming for so long. Dante's been screaming for however, you know, since 2007. I've been screaming since I was an assistant in Hollywood in 2008. Rob and Zoe, I hear you guys all the time. You know, it's not that anything hasn't been said. It's that people are finally starting to listen. And that's what we want to change we want more people to listen because there are people just like us who are saying these things loud and clear Mm -hmm. and are just waiting for an ear so and also just in terms of representation not fiduciary representation i mean representation on the board you know like my fight is not everyone's fight and making sure that like lower levels are actively getting what they need there can be people who are super well-intentioned and that's great but there will be other things that you're focusing on and that's why at least there's a reason why our board is as large as it is because there's room for different perspectives because that's necessary because we have so many different types of writers in our union and so something that like i may spend three full weekends in a row working on putting together like a mid-level training program or something that's may not be a priority for other people who are like, oh, that's a good idea. You need people with these different perspectives who are going to pour so much of themselves into that so that different types of members are getting what they need. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, again, it's it's why I like you guys, because <laughs> we're all kind of of the same cloth. You know, like we're all those mid-levels scrambling to make it, don't have those big names. Um, we're living the issues rather than looking down and observing them Yes, and trying to figure out from up on high how to solve all these problems while the four of us are in the trenches kind of going, we have ideas. We're smart. We're capable. We know this. We've been living this life for how many years now? Like, let us have a seat at the table so we can give you an accurate representation right. of what is going on. Sure, it's a question of perspective. Yeah. The difference of someone being like, it would be so nice if someone gave them a table. Right. It's like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong. Um, the agency campaign, um, as we've talked about uh, a little bit, uh, sort of touches on all of these things, which is in part why it is so enormous and unwieldy and scary and divisive. Um, let's talk about your experience uh, in these past six months, in these past couple of years, and for the future. Uh, where do you see this going? What would you like to see happen? Um, anyone who wants to jump in. Can I point to Rob because he's sure. the Harvard educated <laughs> lawyer? <laughs> and he's very smart. Um, I think for me... The most important thing is to make sure the interests of the agency line up with the interests of the writer, however that looks. And I think a lot of people have been connected to this idea of 10%. The idea of 10% is we know that if you only get paid 10% of what I make, our interests are absolutely aligned. Okay, so when we start looking beyond that, at things and the ways that the industry operates and in a lot of the ways that we are ready to accept, 
we start to question the motives of the agents and the agencies that we work with. You know, so I don't want a world where a showrunner is looking at their budget and they see that three, first 3% coming out and wonder if they could get another writer or have that money show up on the screen. That's a conflict. I don't want a world where that second 3% is based on profitability so every dollar that I make as a writer comes out of my agency's pocket or it pushes back the date where they can realize that profitability because of how much money that I'm making. I don't want a world where I'm being asked to write pilots when I don't know what I'm doing instead of specs because that's what agencies can sell. Right. I know showrunners would like to read specs. I, like It could just be open, and yeah. it's easier to do, <laughs> and it's the job that you actually get. Absolutely. But because oh, you agents, do listen to this podcast. I do <laughs> listen to it a lot. <laughs> I can sing the old theme song if you want me to. Um, but anything that seems yeah. to have the effect of putting our agents in a position where their own best interests are not the same as ours has to be eliminated. I want them there. I want them beside me, but I want them facing the same direction that I am. I want them trying to get me more. Mm -hmm. I want them trying to create more opportunities for me. And so that's why this is so important because if we remove that and we end up pointed in the same direction, I don't think we really know what is actually possible. I think with their pushing for us and pushing in our best interest and selling those shows is worth it for them if there's not a package or we restructure it in a way where they want those things to happen and they're not willing to hold it hostage and it's not worth it for them to work on it. Otherwise, those are the problems that we do need to solve. And so... We're at the beginning of this conversation, um, or we're in the middle of the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but it does feel like a beginning to this conversation in many ways. Because I mean, we don't know what yeah, it's going to look exactly. like ultimately, but if we can align interests, I think we're going to end up in a good place for everybody. Yeah, you know, um, this is the thing that, that I just keep coming back to, and I think Rob made such good points here, but, but you know, a, a lot of screenwriters... Um, when they hear the word packaging, they just they start to tune out because it doesn't. They feel like it doesn't affect them. It doesn't. You know, the fact is is that as long as there is a lowering incentive for them to make money off of your work, you know, they're not going to do that. They're not going to pursue that. You know, I mean, and, and I don't. I don't exactly. I don't blame the agencies. The agencies are in a highly competitive world. Like if one agency creates their own studio the other one has to you know mm -hmm. it's like that's how they see the world that's what they're doing you know which comes back to my point of it's our job to to draw the line in the sand and say hey like you are detaching all incentives of making money off of representing writers and we need we need to correct that mm -hmm. um i guess that the other thing that i would say about my experience of this is that you know, back when we first started talking about this, and this was this time last year, that I, I, I started having real conversations with people about what this negotiation might look like. And I started talking to my agent then, you know, and I remember, uh, I guess it was a month before the vote. I called my agent. I'm like, man, y'all better be on the ball here. Like, this is this is this is going to be a, a real a real tough thing coming down the pike. And I was I was really shocked at, you know, I, I think that the agencies were in a little bit of denial about the danger and the seriousness that we had here. And um, and then after the vote happened, 
when I started having screenwriters, because you know, I I've, I somehow am the guy that people contact when they they, they have a problem, <laughs> um, and so I would I would find myself to like talk other screenwriters through. No, this is why we're doing this, and this is what's going on. And one of the things that's been so uh, frustrating is that I find myself again and again just going over things that we talked about, that mm-hmm. the guild had these functions. We went to the functions. There was lively debate. There was crazy debate. We, we sat and we listened to everything. And everyone, everyone who was in those rooms, you know, they all agreed because we had a good plan. Mm-hmm. And actually the plan is going kind of exactly how we said it was going to go. You know, and and what I think that the the small contingent of screenwriters that are sort of really tuned out of this, it's like it it comes down to just education. It mm-hmm. comes down to the WGA really reaching out to those screenwriters and screenwriters showing up mm-hmm. and getting educated. Because again and again, it's like if, if people had been in those rooms, they would go, "Oh, this is what this is. Yeah. This is what we expected." You know. So. And I think it can't be hit frequently enough, uh, Rob, which you brought up, which is this is about a conflict of interest at its core. This is about a conflict of interest. Uh, and that's the thing that we're trying to, as you say, align the interests. It's it's actually not complicated. Yeah. There's just yeah. a lot of complicated stuff around it. And yeah. also, just on a super basic like capitalism level, we want to get what we pay for. Mm-hmm. Like, you're paying 10% of your income for these people. And, you know, I love my former agent. I was uh, at one of the big four, and she has just always done a phenomenal job for me. Um, But I've, again, realized by talking to hundreds of members that that seems to be the exception and not the rule. And that's why I am so upset about this. It's like, I'm gladly, like... Bitch, I'll write you this 10% any day. Take my money. And, like, that's because, like, she just did a great job, and yeah. everyone should feel that way. Like, any other service, like, if you paid for a meal and they brought you, like, an eighth of the meal, you'd be like, bring the rest of my shit. They got Postmates delivered from somewhere else. You'd be disappointed. Like, this is capitalism. Like, if you get some kind of goods or service like you need to compensate that person for the service it's the same like same thing in the other direction so just like on both sides i feel really strongly if someone is doing a great job for you they are do that 10 percent absolutely you know like a package has nothing to do with it it's like i get wanting to save money if you don't want to pay 10 percent, don't have an agent like Mm -hmm. that's very real but just supporting an action because it's like i want to save money that doesn't make sense but like you if you're unhappy with the 10% you're paying, that's probably because you're unhappy with your agent, and that has to be addressed. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, y'all aren't getting my money unless you do a good job. <laughs> Just to jump on that, too, Zoe, is I've heard from uh, TV writers who were in the game long before I was who would talk about their agents uh, negotiating like scale plus 10 for them or scale plus 15. So that that 10% coming out of their paycheck didn't hit their client as hard as it would have if it was just scale, pay your 10%. Right. Um, There has been a massive decline in that sort of negotiations. I was in a writing team for the last five years. Um, We just consciously uncoupled and here. (laughs) Um, But a big issue was that we we were always going 
for the minimum mm-hmm. for writing teams. Our agents knew that we could really use the money. Right. You know, they put us on package shows, but when we were on the package shows, it was, hey, you don't have to take, uh, pay 10%. Here's the minimum. Huh. Take the minimum. There was one point where uh, we were asked to stop on a show. We didn't have a meeting. Our script wasn't read. The showrunner just called his agents and said, wow. make a deal. Make a deal with this writing team. Um, and so our agents called us and told us they're going to give you minimum. Isn't that great? And you don't have to pay the 10%. That's awesome. We did not know that asking for more money Mm -hmm. was, and was basically an option. And not only would that have helped us in that moment for that year, that would have set a precedent for us for every show that we went on afterwards. And especially being, Two young women on our own, you know, living off the money that we make. We were co-producers on a show last year uh, and ran the room when the senior level writers were out of it. We were helping uh, supervise lower level writers on their episodes. We made less than the staff writer. And so I'm not saying that they're bad people. I really, really like my agents a whole lot. But I think there's a there's an agency culture that has become do what you need to do rather than looking out for the writer in their best interest. Mm-hmm. Because for them, it's you don't have to pay the 10%. Isn't that great? Mm-hmm. Like, that's that's what we got you. Mm-hmm. So it's frustrating. It's really frustrating. I wanted to speak for just a second to the agent and screenwriter relationship because I do think that it is very different for screenwriters how they perceive, how we perceive our agents. You know, I mean, I I was incredibly lucky to get my great, great agent. He's one of my favorite people in this entire industry. He's really good at what he does. And I, I, there's, I cannot imagine having the career that I have without having had that person. And one thing that we don't have as screenwriters are these networks of, 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 of people that we've been on jobs with that, uh, that are our friends that will hire us in the future, right? And so I think a lot of screenwriters, hmm. we, we are scared right now, you sure. know? We, we don't see a way forward where it's just like, oh, well, I'll just get a different agent. It's like, I built my career for 13 years with one person. I, that's not a, that's a marriage, you know? And so that's one of the tricky things. But it, again, it comes back around to let's look at the state of play. Let's look at what's happening into the future. If the agencies continue to learn how to make money in a, a, a hundred different ways other than making you money, then the downward pressure on on our salaries, it's it's already there. The incentives are gone, and it will affect all of us. Yeah, I, absolutely. Um, I want to. Uh, I could talk to you all all day. Um, this is a terrific group. I genuinely feel that the future of our union is in good hands with all of you. Um, I urge our listeners get out there and vote for these four people. Um, vote for all the people I've had on this podcast. Uh, we want to end as we always do by asking you what you are watching on television these days. What movies have you seen that have gotten you excited or inspired? What input are you putting in that you are really loving? And Rob, let's start with you. Sure. Um, I love just jokey comedies. <laughs> What's out there big, now? You know what? I've fallen in love with Southside um, on Comedy Central. Oh yeah, I like, heard that was good. Really, really funny. Um, and when I when I go to the room and start talking about shows and start quoting jokes from the night before, that's the show I'm talking about. <laughs> that's great. Uh, but I also love uh, Good Place. I also love Brooklyn Nine Nine. I, I love 
comedies that want <laughs> to be comedies and hit you with a billion jokes and make you laugh and surprise you with different things. Like that's where I like to spend my time. And that's what I love. I love watching. Right. Um, yeah. Dante. Oh, um, uh, well, you know, good places. Definitely. Like it's one of the most amazing, crazy. I did not know anyone could possibly do that and keep that going in yeah. the way that they have. I mean, it's really, really humbling. And, and right now I'm doing this thing, this sort of anti binge watch that I sometimes do, which is flea bag, which, you know, everyone ha they've seen it all, but I'm literally, it's like, we're only allowed one episode, you know? So <laughs> my boyfriend and I, we sit on the couch and it's like, and we watch the episode of, of a flea bag and then he asked me go i i'm i can't write i'm not a good writer like, <laughs> how great this is. absolutely um, yeah no i'm i'm pretty obsessed that's um, great yeah good one zoe um i am a sucker for romantic comedy so i'm currently watching four weddings and a funeral mm -hmm. the new mindy kaling show uh also a black lady sketch show which is yeah. funny as fuck so everyone needs funny. to watch it if you don't have hbo steal your roommate's hbo login <laughs> watch it it's worth the free trial yeah, yeah just to is. watch it's the, so it's funny. Really that funny. show oh my god when she was like all i wanted was a black lady therapist but maybe i'm dreaming too big yo with that good wga insurance i have a black lady therapist and it's the best <laughs> so good mm -hmm. i'm obsessed with pose Mm -hmm. Oh my god, I'm obsessed with Pose. Like I that's one of the few shows that I watch live. Um Billy Porter is amazing. Everyone is amazing. The women on that show are just so frigging gorgeous. <laughs> like it makes me upset because I can't do my makeup or ever get my posture <laughs> that like precise. Um, and it's amazing. I've I've also been watching Euphoria. I'm, I'm going through like a real it's dark so phase right now. Yeah, Euphoria. <laughs> it's so good. Oh my amazing. god, it's yeah. an amazing. It's show. In, it's insane yeah. and it's dark and no. it's it's makes me feel bad about my sheltered life as a teenager. Um, <laughs> and then I'm also watching Pen Fifteen because I am also a Hoppa and I I never get to see other uh, mixed race. Asian actresses, especially in the comedy field, yeah. like they're very rare to find. So, and it's I'm, just funny. Oh, it's like, so it's funny. Such a funny! It's show. so friggin' funny. Like I, when I am just like mellowing out with my dog and my cat, like I just put on <laughs> Pen Fifteen and we all just gather around and we watch it. <laughs> Did anyone else get their FYC package? Because they sent oh, they sent them to the room. Yeah, they sent oh, them to amazing. the writers' room and it had all this '90s swag. And oh yeah. my god, I they sent a box of pop tarts that the staff literally fought over. <laughs> <laughs> That's so really funny. good. I say like more shows got to be sending big packages yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. to to writers' rooms. Yes. 100%. <laughs> I like the idea. Um, thank you all so much for being here. Um, I look forward to what all of you are doing next. Yay! Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Engineered and mastered by Alex Sarchet. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcast.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook. <laughs>